Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. We are speaking with Bill Federer, a nationally known speaker and best-selling author of over 20 books highlighting America's heritage. Bill will be appearing in our area at the Union Towns Tea Party meeting on October 24th at 7 p.m. at the Upstairs Community Room located at Butternut Golf Course in Blairsville. What you've just described, uh, Bill, is, is really what this country was founded on. Our founders wrote a constitution that was very elemental, very, very simple. There were a minimum number of rules. There weren't a whole bunch of rules. And what they said was, in order to, for this to work out, we have to have morality and education. So if you have a population that is moral, follows moral guidelines and is educated, we have a simple way of running a country. That was their whole concept, wasn't it? Exactly. Uh, the less internal restraints you have, the more external restraints you need. Uh, if the people have lots of morals then you don't need to have as many external. Sort of like, you know, you tell a teenager, here are the car keys, you can come home whenever, I know you're going to do what's right. But if you don't do what's right, and give in to your passions and lusts, you're going to get pulled over for speeding and doing all kinds of reckless stuff, and you're going to be put in jail behind bars. So, teenager, you are going to be controlled, either voluntarily from the inside or forcibly from the outside. It's the same way with the nation. We're either going to be voluntarily controlled with internal morals or we're going to give into our passions and lusts and have lawlessness and then we're going to end up having our freedoms taken away and be ruled by a totalitarian state. And um, But, you know, it's interesting. If you want to be a dictator, you want the people to be ignorant. And uh, we experienced some of that in America prior to the Civil War where the Democrat states passed Jim Crow laws and all these laws where it, it was illegal to teach slaves to read. That's right. Uh, Frederick Douglass uh, writes in his autobiography about growing up on a slave plantation, and the sister, slave master's sister-in-law was teaching him the alphabet. And the slave master walks in, yells at her, and says, don't you dare teach slaves how to read. They'll grow discontent and want to run away. <laughs> and... Um, so uh, Frederick Douglass says, that was my first sermon on why I wanted to learn how to read. So if you want to have a country where you can have a dictator controlling everybody, you got to dumb the people down. Uh, anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss 
said ancient writings' main function was to facilitate the enslavement of other human beings, right? It was this secret group that had all the information and everybody else just had to believe whatever the, the uh, those in power wanted them to believe. Uh, another interesting appearance of this in history was the Greeks and uh, we had, uh, around 600 BC, Athens had a king named Draco, and he had the first written laws. So kings would rule by their whims and their caprices, and the people said, look, king, at least write these things down so we can have some structure to our lives. Well, they write them down, but it's the death penalty for every other thing. And so they called them draconian laws after King Draco. And uh, But then they get a new king named Salon, S-O-L-O-N. And Salone invented democracy and left town, so they had to do it. And so in a democracy, everybody, every day, has to go to the market talk politics. And if you don't show up at the market for a couple of days, you don't know what's going on, you're called an idiotus, an idiot. <laughs> and so if there's a king and you have an agenda, you got to get in to see the king. So the Chinese emperors had their... 2,000 concubines and the Mandarin eunuchs that would keep their harems. And if you wanted to get in to see the emperor, you would bribe these Mandarins with kind of, with all kinds of money and favors just to get a meeting with the emperor. Well, in Athens, there was no emperor. There was no king or pharaoh. It was the people that made the decisions, right? Salon set up this democracy. So if you have an agenda, how do you pitch your agenda to an entire city? Well, you get them together in a big outdoor amphitheater and you put on plays, comedies, tragedies, satires, where you ridicule and buffoon certain points of view and you honor and extol other points of view. And from that time till now, theater is always political in a country where it's the people who are making the decisions. And so if you, you know, I tell people, think of your favorite sitcom, your movie, your show, and there's some character you like, you identify with. They're cute, they're funny, they're the hero. And as this movie or series goes on, this character begins to make morally compromising decisions. Little lie, little cheat, little lust, little revenge. And you find yourself apologizing for him, saying, I know James Bond is with a woman he's not married to, but he's about to save the world. So can we get on with the story? And it sort of minimizes what used to be a big character quality, like marital fidelity, you know. And then they usually make people that hold old traditional values to look like simpletons and bumpkins and idiots and even hateful. And you turn off the TV show and, man, I don't want to be like that person. He was called hateful. He was he looked so stupid. This other person, man, they were cool. Yeah, they were really in. And so the television provides the peer pressure. The same way if you're in a room full of people and they all have, they, they call it the spiral of silence. Believe it or not, um, uh, they did a, back several decades ago, uh, a psychologist did an experiment where they uh, had a wine tasting. And all these couples came in to taste the wine and you would mark on a little card which ones you like and which ones you didn't like. And so they went around the room and... This one couple had marked that they really liked this one wine and the other wine tastes like turpentine. It was horrible. And as they went around the room, everybody else would stand up and say that the turpentine one tasted great and the other one tasted cheap and everything. And so by the time it came around to this couple, they like stood up and they go, uh, yeah, we sort of agree with everybody else. Yeah, the turpentine one was great. And after it was all over, they found out that everybody else in the room was in on the experiment and they knew they were lying. And it was only this one couple that was the, the one that didn't know that it was an experiment. Uh, 
And so they found that people will deny their own common sense in order to fit in with the crowd. And it's this peer pressure. Uh, Saul Linsky identified it. He said, ridicule is the most powerful weapon, and nobody wants to be shamed. Even little kids going to preschool, they don't want to wear the shoes that make them look silly. And so um, everybody wants to fit in. And so what television does and the media is it provides peer pressure. Now, right there in your own house, you're all by yourself, but suddenly you're feeling this peer pressure that if you want to be accepted, you've got to fit in with this. And uh, But it says it goes all the way back to Athens and all the way back to Greece and all the way back to keeping people ignorant and uneducated so that they can be more easily swayed by these uh, psychological manipulations. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. We'll be right back after a quick break. What you're talking about, of course, is groupthink and mob psychology. And what we see and what we know is that in a, a protest situation, people will do things, say things, even break the law to be part of the group rather than stand out or be uh, in any way less than what the group wants them to be. People will do things in groups that they would never, ever think of doing if they were by themselves. Yeah, I'm convinced that's one of the reasons why Jesus made it where you had to be willing to follow him, uh, uh, even if everybody else is against you. He said, you have to love me more than your mother, your brother, your sisters, or you know, so forth. Um, because it's a changing from, the, you know, I mean, the difference between an, an animal that is herded, um, you know, uh, they say, well, how do you herd animals? Uh, they have a, a structure. And they have the, uh, the the head horse or the head uh, cow, and the uh, person that's taming them goes in and ends up sitting on that that head horse or that head cow. And they take the place of it. You know, they would herd the buffalo by going up and uh, riding their horse up to the head head buffalo, and you know, Buffalo Bill would do this, and then shooting it, and then their horse would be the head. And then they would just go in a circle until they finally got all the buffalo to, to be in the circle so they could shoot them all. Um, but uh, so when you're in a group, that's how the, the dynamics work. When you are an individual, uh, then you are not, it's like you're a different species, uh, that you're a loner, uh, that you're, you're a, a lion, you can live by yourself. Um, and so it's a, a psych- psychological change. Um, but while we're into the psychology, there's another thing I wanted to bring up, and it's called psychological projection. Um, and so this is a, a tactic, uh, Sigmund Freud coined the term, of a rude person projects their rudeness onto others. And so if you got somebody, then they're saying, everybody else is so rude. They're, well, I think that the person doing the accusing is rude. And so hateful people will always call everybody else hateful. They'll even put up websites and they'll list all the groups they don't agree with and call them hateful. And so it's actually the group that's doing the name calling that is the hateful group. And so um, little kids do this. A bully on a playground will push everybody else around. And uh, when you know one kid had enough and defends himself, the bully beats him up and says, well, teacher, he started it. Uh, wife beaters will do this. Well, you provoked me. It's it's your fault that I beat you up. <laughs> Aggressor nations do this. Some little incident will be used as, as an excuse for a country to come in and take over the nation. Right? 
And, uh, and is Muslims do this. They'll come into a very tolerant community, and then they'll accuse their host of being intolerant. And they'll say, we're the victims, you were intolerant of us, and therefore we're justified in killing you. Uh, they sort of bypass the fact that they wouldn't even be in the host country if the host country wasn't tolerant enough to invite them in. Um, and so we see this concept. Uh, David Axelrod was Obama's campaign manager. He said, in Chicago politics, we have a tradition where you throw a brick through your own campaign office window, and then you call a press conference to accuse your opponent. In other words, you do the hateful thing, and then you accuse your opponent of being hateful. Right? And so what do we see? We see very intolerant people destroying things and saying that it's somebody else's fault. And so this is the, the words, this is what's playing out in the news today, that the hateful and tolerant people are accusing others of being hateful and tolerant when they're actually the ones guilty of it. And um, uh, it's every political campaign, you see this happening. Let's say you're a politician and uh, you're running for office and you've been doing corrupt stuff on the side. And uh, it's about to come to light. And you get word that your opponent's about to do a, a TV uh, commercial to expose your, uh, your corruption. So what do you do? You hurry up and call a press conference, and you accuse your opponent of corruption. And it makes the headlines, and, and all of a sudden, all the news media comes to you, and they say, we hear you, you're the corrupt guy. And you're like all of a sudden having to to open up your coat and show everybody, look, I didn't do anything wrong. Look at me and you pull, you know, that. and meanwhile, the other guy gets a pass. And then when they finally, the dust settles and you said, no, no, look, that's the corrupt guy. The public is worn out by that time. And it's ah, tit for tat. They're all calling each other. This who knows what's right. And they get a pass, right? So if you're about to be exposed, you hurry up and accuse your opponent. So, you know, I mean, you, we see this with, uh, with Hillary, uh, here she was, uh, negotiating to give uranium to the Russians. And what does she do? She turns around and accuses Trump of colluding with the Russians. Um, and so you accuse your opponent of what you're guilty of. And then all the public looks to the opponent and you get a pass. It's a, a very interesting tactic. Uh, I encourage the listeners to look it up. It's called psychological projection. And it's exactly what um, is happening in the news every day. Uh, you have the, the nightly comedians and they make fun of of someone when uh, calling them intolerant or whatever when they're actually the ones that are spreading the intolerance. So, Bill, how do you how do you fight a tactic like this? What is what can people do to be effective? Because you're right, this kind of accusation game that is being played is extremely effective because you tar and feather your opponent verbally before. He even has a chance to defend himself, but that's that first accusation that remains foremost in people's minds. How do you fight that? Well, when you have a, a dumbed-down populist, uh, it's difficult. Um, and uh, it's what, um, you know, the opposite of hate is, is love. The opposite of pride is humility. Uh, basically, the gospel is the, the, the answer. Um that brings up a whole other topic, and it's uh, called Hegelian dialectics. So I have a few minutes I'd like to, to share on that, and I think that will shed some light for, for an answer to your question. Go right ahead. So um, uh, Hegelian dialectics, what's that? Well, let's back up a little bit. We talked about uh, kings, and the most common form of government in all of recorded history is kings. 
Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsars, very few examples of people getting an opportunity to rule without a king. Ancient Israel, ancient Greece, Rome was a republic for 500 years until Julius Caesar turned it into an empire, made himself dictator for life. And so very few examples of people ruling themselves. But there are, uh, in the 1500s, Italy was a bunch of city-states. They were like noblemen's republics, and um, they uh, always fought. Uh, you had uh, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Siena, and uh, a guy that lived in Italy during this time was named Machiavelli. He was in Florence, and he uh, thought, well, you know what? If one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting between these city-states. So he writes a book called The Prince, where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end, because it'll stop the infighting, that any means necessary to get there is justified. Lie, cheat, steal. So if a prince conquers a city, the people would hate him. But if the prince pays criminals to kill cows and burn barns and create riots and all kinds of dis social disruption, the people will cry out for help. And the prince will come in and kill the very criminals he bribed. Nobody would know the better for it. And everyone would praise the prince as a hero. And so it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house and set it on fire. And then you go around the front of the house and sell a fire extinguisher. And they'll pay anything for it and thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on crises to consolidate control. And uh, then we fast forward to Napoleon conquers Prussia. So Germany was not Germany. It was a bunch of Russian, I'm sorry, German provinces. And one of those provinces was Prussia. And the other was Saxony and Bavaria and so forth. And so the Prussian king said, well, we can't let someone like Napoleon conquer us that easy again. We need to strengthen the state. And so the philosopher that uh, gave justification was Hegel, H-E-G-E-L. And Hegel said the state is God walking on earth. And he came up with a way to concentrate power, sort of like Machiavelli, but he put it into an equation. It's like a triangle. One corner is a thesis. The opposite corner is an antithesis, antithesis. And the top corner is a synthesis. It sounds complicated, but it's not. In other words, you start off... And then you create a problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer that's half as bad. And then that becomes the new thesis starting point, and then you create another antithesis, another problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer that's half as bad. And that's the new thesis. You do this again and again and again until you move from the people ruling themselves from the bottom up to a king ruling from the top down. And so uh, Karl Marx took Hegelian dialectics, and he applied it politically. And uh, he would send in uh, agitators and agent provocateurs, provoking agents and organizers, community organizers, labor organizers. And they would find people who had grievances, who felt slighted, who felt that they've been wronged. And you would organize them and play upon their lusts and their hurt feelings. And you would say, you want what the other ones have. Follow me and we'll fix it. We'll ride it. You can get what they have. Appeal to their covetousness. And uh, and so uh, now it works best if the people are not Christian. Even Napoleon said, religion is what keeps the poor from murdering the rich. So if you have poor people that are Christian, don't just suffer. But if you get rid of Christianity, then all you have is raw mob. You have people that have no respect for property, no respect for rights. They don't care about doing to others as you would have them doing to you. 
And so Karl Marx would organize the proletariat against the bourgeois, the working class against the business owners. They'd organize the poor against the rich, the blacks against the whites, the Catholics against the Protestants, the Muslims against the Christians, the Hutus against the Tutsis in the Congo and Rwanda. They really don't care who the two sides are, and they really don't care what the issues are. Is it a Confederate flag? Is it a statue? Is it their anthem? They don't care about that. All they want is a social disruption that's so bad that everybody's willing to surrender their freedoms to have order restored. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The rights to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. I get joy in everything. Everything. Everything.